I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Welcome back to Align Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and today's beautiful episode got to have what I would imagine to be the world's leading expert on how to cultivate better habits in your life. Uh, James Clear, he just wrote a book called Atomic Habits, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. Uh, Super good episode. I really dig James a lot. He's traveled all around the world. He really loves photography and art and things outside of just books and business and stuff like that. So he's like a real human being, which is really great. Um, This conversation, we go all across the board into different tangential realms and uh, got a lot of value around how to reform those habits of yours. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in to the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can start the five-day movement challenge, start integrating more effective movement into your day-to-day life. This podcast is brought to us by a company I have been loving for the last several months called Faraday. It is my absolute favorite type of underwear. Um, they're made of bamboo and spandex, a combination of the two. Bamboo is really good for you for all sorts of reasons. Um, and the big thing, they have a crotch that is laced with silver. It's pretty freaking cool. Sounds quite royal. Um, and it blocks EMF from penetrating in and around your genital territory. So getting your nuts or ovaries, submitting that to electromagnetic frequencies all day is associated to uh, reduction of fertility, reduction in testosterone, all sorts of things you do not want. I recommend personally just turn your phone in airplane mode anytime you're not using it. Um, and uh, these underwear are great. You can get yourself a free pair. Go to Fair Days dot co co uh it's f-a-r-a-d-a-y-s dot co and then at checkout um type in a line and you get yourself a free pair of faraday's underwear so check that out ship uh, you pay shipping i think it's like a few bucks for shipping um hope you guys dig them i'm wearing them right now i like them um thanks so much for views on itunes thanks so much for tuning in thanks for doing you here we go back to the show with James Clear. Oh, final thing. Um, I am leading a thing with Aubrey Marcus and company. Uh, Chris Ryan, Duncan Trussell, Christine Hassler, a bunch of great people are going to be involved in the this event coming up November 9th in Santa Monica. So you can check that out through Aubrey's site. And um, I hope to see you guys out there. All right. Thanks so much. Here we go. Back to the show. Bow. Align Podcast. All right. Um, what was your breakfast? What kind of food did you get to this morning? Uh, I didn't have breakfast because I intermittent fast. So, Are you like know, a ketogenic guy? guy. Um, no, I don't do keto or paleo or anything like strict, but I eat generally that way. All right. Yeah. What's your, what's you your keto? What, no, I'm not. Sometimes. I mean, I'm sure my body's ketotic every now and yeah. again. <laughs> right. This is how I feel about it. I, like, I want to eat mostly plant-based and mostly whole foods and not processed stuff, but I'm not going to be militant about any particular diet. Mm, no, the, uh, so the intro of your book, as I had mentioned, was God dang enthralling. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> your face doesn't look that misarranged. Yeah. Well, I used to be smart though, and then, uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah. I had this crazy injury, got hit in the face with a baseball bat 
And um, I mean, it was a total you accident. You just get hit in the face with a baseball bat. It was like. Yeah, it was intense. I mean, it shattered both eye sockets, broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, which is really hard to break because it's pretty deep in your skull. Um, and got helicoptered to the place and you were they put you in a coma and yeah. your like brain was exploding couldn't breathe on my own brain was totally freaking out you know there's so much swelling with something like that so i started having seizures over and over again that day um and ended up taking me it was like eight or nine months uh for the full recovery I couldn't drive a car for eight or eight months i first physical therapy session i just practiced walking in a straight line um so it was a long road back for sure how did that play into the habits well i mean in a sense my hand was forced and what i mean is that like i you know uh when you're in a situation like that i couldn't just flip a switch and be better um you know i, I had to start small and so that was uh maybe the first time that i really had to internalize this idea of just getting a little bit better each day mm. i mean I, I wouldn't have said that at the time right like i didn't have a language for it i wouldn't have said oh i'm just trying to get one percent better but effectively that's what i was forced into doing because I had to just try to find some small signal of progress or positive improvement I was making each day. And then uh, eventually, over the next five or six years, I was able to kind of live that out and make my way back and have this good career with baseball and all that type of stuff. Yeah, what was, so what, what is getting 1% better? Because the idea sounds really great, but then what that actually tends yeah, what's that translate looking to? like? It's like uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I think it's more, you can consider it more a heuristic or just like a way of thinking about it. You know, like you're not looking for massive improvements. You're just literally trying to make sure you never end a day without finding something that you can improve on. And usually it's something small. I mean, it might be like, you know, how you design the room uh, so that you're more, um, I don't wanna say triggered, but prompted to do the right thing. Um, You know, so for example, if you watch too much television, well, walk into pretty much any living room in America, where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the TV. So it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? So there are a variety of things you could do there. You could like, take a chair and turn it away from the television. You could take the remote control and put it in a drawer. You could put the TV behind like a wall unit or a cabinet. So you're less likely to see it. You could also increase the friction of the task. So you could like take the remote control, uh, the batteries out of it. Um, so that it takes an extra five or 10 seconds to turn it on. And you're like, do I really want to do this? Or am I just like mindlessly turning it on? Um, you could unplug the TV and then only plug it back in. If you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you can't just like turn Netflix on and find something. Um, and if you really wanted to be extreme about it, you could take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only take it out if you wanted to watch something bad enough to set it up again. Um, I had one reader who they, she and her husband got rid of their TV and their metric was like, if we don't care enough about this game to drive 15 minutes and go to the bar to watch it, then like we probably shouldn't be watching it. Mm. Um, but uh, my point there is that all of those are examples of like 1% improvements. Now, none of them mathematically you could quantify and be like, oh, it's exactly 1% better, but they're all small shifts that nudge you in the right direction. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a philosophy of living rather than like a calculation. seems like we waste so much time. We don't realize it. Yeah. You know, in those times where you're flipping through the channels, like <laughs> if you, if you were to add all that up in the end of the year, it's gotta be it's crazy. A lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Think about your phone, right? The average person, it goes up, every, this number goes up every year. But, yeah. but now the average adult checks their phone over 150 times a day. And um, one thing I've noticed, I've started keeping my phone in another room uh, outside of my office until lunch each day. So I at least get like a three or four hour block of time where my phone just isn't around and I can focus. And um, what's funny is that if the phone is next to me, 
I'll pick it up and check it just like everybody else. I'll look at it every, you know, three minutes or whatever. But when it's not in my office, when it's in another room, it's not far away. It's only like 45 seconds away. I just got to go up the stairs and go to another room and get it. But I never go get it. And so it's like, well, I was checking it all the time when it was right next to me, but I never wanted to use it enough for it to be worth 45 seconds of work. Mm. And I think there are a lot of things in our uh, life, especially with modern technology, that are like that, where they're so convenient, so frictionless, so easy and obvious that we fall into them, even though we don't really want them. We just want them because they're so easy. And so if you can increase the friction just a little bit, make it a little bit harder to order takeout food, a little bit less likely you pick up your phone, a little bit less likely to turn on a TV, then you'll often do the thing you actually wanted to do, like sitting down to write an article or to think about some project that was important to you. It's not that you don't want to do those things. They just aren't quite as convenient and frictionless, and so you don't opt for them. But the issue with being an adult is you don't have a mother or father figure to put your phone upstairs. Mm. You know, so I love the idea. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, I'm just going to grab my fucking I'm phone. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's that? What's like the golden bridge to making that connection happen? Well, so there, I mean, there are, well, first of all, you're just raising the issue of the importance of an accountability partner. And in a lot of ways, that's what parents are. They're a method or a coach is a method of keeping you accountable when either you wouldn't do it yourself or you're not aware of it yourself. So, I mean, that's one method is hire a coach. Um, oh. Now, it may not work for everything. It may not work for keeping your phone in another room. Probably pay for a coach would be of value. Yes. Like, the, one of my favorite examples of this is um, Atul Gawande. He was a surgeon, uh, is a surgeon. Um, and uh, he hired a surgeon who did the same kind of operations as him uh, and had just retired to be his coach and review the video from his surgeries and tell him where he was making mistakes and what he could improve on and so on. Mm. He just wanted a third party. And doctors don't usually do that. But my point is that you don't just need to be an athlete to have a coach. Pretty much anybody can have a coach. Like find a mentor, find someone who's been great in your field, and then have them critique you. Pay them to, to be aware of your mistakes, the things that you would overlook. Hmm. So that's one method. But the second method, and this is useful for, for pretty much any uh, habit, is that you can use what I call a commitment device. Psychologists call it a commitment device. Um, so let's take the phone in the other room example. You're like, well, that would be good, but I wouldn't actually do that. Well... What you can do is use a commitment device, which is a way to lock in your future behavior. And so one example is they, they make these Tupperware containers that have a lock on them. And so yeah. you like time it, you can, you know, lock this for like 10 hours. Neil like, Strauss uses that when you're right. Can't writes. get the cookies or whatever. Yeah. Well, imagine if you go to sleep um, each night and you put your phone inside the lock box uh, and you program it so it can't be opened until, I don't know, whatever you want, 10 a.m. the next morning, noon the next day, whatever. Mm. Um, and so then you go to sleep. Maybe you have to get a regular alarm clock, which is going to cost you, you know, $8 on Amazon or whatever. Uh, you wake up in the morning. You do your morning. You can't even get to your phone. Um, and then it gets to lunchtime and you can take it out. Um, and, of course, the exact details of this are going to differ based on your job and your circumstances and how quickly you need to get to it and all that stuff. But, uh, but that's one way um, to do it. Also, a lot of people have multiple phones now. You know, they'll have their, their new one and they got like the old model or whatever. Trap phone. Yeah. Well, you can. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should have uh, several trap phones. The burner. Uh, <laughs> you, could, uh, you could delete all the apps off of that, you know, delete the uh, internet access. Um, you no longer have, uh, take the SIM card out if you want. Right. Um, and just use it as an alarm clock or uh, use it as an emergency phone. Uh, to call friends and family if you need it, but it doesn't have any of the other stuff that mm. you would use it for. So you've got like an out um, if you have to use something at 8.30, but you can't usually get access to your regular one. Um, 
And there are a bunch of ways to use a commitment device like that. We were just talking about sleep before, before we hopped on and started recording this. And uh, one of my favorite examples, my friend uh, Nir Ayal, he bought an outlet timer. Um, and an outlet timer costs like 10 bucks on Amazon. And you, it's basically like an adapter. You plug it into the outlet, and then you plug the device into the outlet timer. But you can set the timer to kill the power at a particular time. So he, uh, he plugged his in and then put his internet router in it and then set the timer to kill the power at 10 p.m. each night. So gets to be 10 p.m., internet's off, can't watch Netflix, can't browse the web anymore, it's time for everybody to go to bed. And that's effectively like a commitment device that locks in that future behavior and nudges you toward the right direction. So mm-hmm. I think uh, in a lot of ways you can use technology to serve you rather than hinder you and kind of help you with some of that stuff. I think it's like most of us are drug addicts. We just don't realize it. Yeah. You know, it's like sometimes you need to starve the parasite to get to the point where it eventually it like dies off. That's kind of like um, in like Vipassana meditation. Like, like that's the guy, Gwenka, he, he talks about doing, like, we're doing deep, deep surgery, deep, deep emotional surgery. You know, and it's like you get to a point after like seven, eight days where you haven't, you've just ignored the aversion or the, the, the craving, an aversion and a craving. And you do that and it's just hell for a week. Mm. And then finally, you kind of come to this point, which in your book, you talk about like um, ice won't start melting, melting. We just finished the ice bath thing, which was which was didn't go quite completely (laughs) successful, Um, but it doesn't start melting until it gets past that 32 degrees or zero degrees Mm -hmm. Celsius. You know, so we can be, you know, negative 50 degrees and you won't see any change with it. And then all of a sudden you hit that 32 and oh, we're off. Now, I wonder if there's something something to that as far as like the way that we think. Possibly. I, so I did a kind of a little experiment like that with social media as I wrote the book. Cause I, I got about a year in and I was like, man, I need to make sure I'm focused to get this thing done. Yeah. So every uh, Monday, my assistant would reset the passwords for Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mm. And I would get locked out and I'd work all week. And then on Friday she would give me the passwords and I could log in and use it on the weekend. And then on Monday we'd do it all over again. Damn. So I would, you know, I would, wouldn't have access for five days and I'd concentrate. And um, what was interesting is uh, there were kind of, there were two things. One was how quickly I realized, like, I don't really miss this that much. You know, yeah. like you, it's weird because you're checking it all day long if you just normally have access. And then suddenly you don't have it for four days and you're like, yeah, everything's fine. Um, well, it's fucking new. Which was, is fascinating. It wasn't around. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, nine years ago or well, whatever. <laughs> Certainly not a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand, right? Like, it's not like we evolved <laughs> to use Instagram. <laughs> Right. Like there's no, there's no reason you, you weren't born with the, like this burning need to use, to use social media. Um, so that was interesting. The second thing was some services, I actually, I would get access to Facebook and then I just wouldn't log in over the weekend. I could use it. But then even after like five days, I was like, Oh, I don't even, not only do I not need it, I don't even want it. Hmm. Um, which was kind of fascinating. So I think a lot of that, uh, comes back to what I talked about earlier with the frictionless and convenient and easy ease of it. Hmm. Um, the more when something is so frictionless that it only takes a half a second to pull it out of your pocket and tap it, um, you find yourself doing it just when you're bored, not when you actually want or need it for some reason. Yeah. Who were some of the influences in it? You mentioned operant conditioning and BF mm. Skinner and, and is there someone? So when I wrote Atomic Habits, I, I realized that I wanted to have a book that was both the why and the how. Yeah. And so I wanted a book that described why we act the way we do and why human behavior kind of operates in this way, but also how we can change it. Like, what can we do about it? Um, and there are kind of two big bodies of research in the psychology world. I also draw on ideas from neuroscience and biology and other places, but 
Um, so there was BF Skinner uh, and his operant conditioning, which he described in the 30s as stimulus response reward. Um, and then it's kind of been like repopularized uh, and um, brought into the modern day by Charles Duhigg in his book, Power of Habit, where he called it Q routine reward. Mm. Um, and it's really effective because what psychologists have found is that when you offer the right reward uh, or consequence, you, we start to get conditioned. We start to link the cue that came before the behavior to the reward. But then there's a second body of research uh, by cognitive psychologists that found out that your moods and your emotions and your beliefs can also influence your behavior in a big way. And um, behavioral psychology didn't really account for that as well. Um, it, it was like, no, you just show people the cue, like, you, you know, you, um, you have the, the, pellet, the light flashes and then the rat presses the lever and they get a pellet. And it's like light flash, that's cue. You press the lever, that's the habit. And then you get the um, pellet, that's the reward. That should be the whole thing. But it turns out in humans, um, what you believe and what you, uh, how you interpret the cue can have a big influence on how you respond. And so I wanted to have a model <laughs> that I felt like mapped those two together. And you see this in many different areas. So like take um, politics is a really easy one. You could have a news station run the same story and a liberal and a conservative see the same thing, but they run it through a different filter. They interpret the cue in a different way. Yeah. And so they respond totally differently. Um, and it's true even on a more basic level, uh, you, the individual can respond to the same cue in different ways. So like, um, the model that I mentioned in the book has four stages, cue, craving, response, reward. And, um, say you walk into a kitchen and you see a plate of cookies. That's a cue, visual cue. It doesn't have to be visual, but it often is. Then maybe your prediction, if you're hungry is, oh, those are going to taste good. I should eat them. So you predict it as being attractive. You're, you crave it. You take the response, you eat the cookie, and then you get the reward. Tastes good, sugary. But you could just as easily be in a different state. Um, so your, your prediction depends on your current state. So let's say you just finished eating dinner in the other room and you walk in, you see a plate of cookies, same cue. But now you think, oh, I'm full. I'm stuffed. I don't want to eat anything. So your state has changed, which means your prediction changes. And so then your response changes. You don't eat the cookies and so on. And uh, this happens all the time. I felt like it was really important to have a model that discussed how habits worked and accounted for both of those. It accounts for the importance of the cue and the reward, but it also accounts for the importance of your prediction, your beliefs, how you interpret those cues and how your thoughts, moods, and beliefs can influence the action that follows mm. within the whole operant conditioning thing with Skinner feeding the, the pigeons, I think mm -hmm. it was one of the yeah, like, yeah. little gizmo, the, the, the most impactful factor was the variability from my understanding. Right? Yeah. And that's what social media does. So immaculately. <laughs> so social media, video games, um, many digital uh, creations can do this thing. That's very hard to have in the real world, which is they can offer, the ideal rate of variability. Um, they can give you a reward randomly, but on average, they, it happens about 50% of the time. So about half the time you get what you want and you know, half the time you don't. And that is like an incredibly tempting thing for the human brain. It leads to the greatest dopamine spike yeah. um, and it drives you to repeat things again and again. There's actually, I, this is a footnote in the book, but it's an interesting story about how Skinner came across that. Hmm. So uh, when he was feeding pellets to the rats or, um, you know, food to the pigeons, yeah. he had to hand press the pellets. He had a little um, device and uh, he was running an experiment one day and they were running low on the food stuff to, to make the pellets out of. And um, it was like a weekend or something. And he, uh, he didn't have time to go get some. So he was like, oh, I don't want to stop this experiment in the middle of it. So he just started 
making fewer he had fewer pellets so he started skipping occasionally he like mm. wouldn't give them one and then he'd you know to space it out so the experiment could, yeah and then <laughs> he ended up finding out by running low on food that wow not only does it still work they actually respond more you got a bunch when, of rat, rat crackheads yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh so you know i mean this is one of the things that makes video games there 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 are many things that video games employ but i think there are two things in particular that make them so addicting or drive to habitual behavior one is they can vary the pace of rewards so if you're crushing it and doing really well on a level well you're going to see fewer power-ups and you'll face harder challenges and so on if you're doing poorly maybe they'll throw a couple things your way and help you make your way along but they want to keep you on that razor's edge of making progress and the second thing is immediate feedback you have a counter in the top corner that's always going up you're collecting more rubies and coins and whatever even the mm. the pitter patter of steps as you're running through the level is a signal that you're making progress. And so <laughs> video games are really good at varying the amount of rewards so that you're in that peak state and giving you immediate positive feedback to show that you're making progress. And we can translate both of those to daily life and habits, which is that if you can find a way to signal that you're making immediate progress, it's very motivating to stick with it. Um, Living on that razor's edge and having the perfect amount of variable rewards, winning just enough to stay motivated, losing just enough to stay challenged, yeah. that's really hard in daily life, um, but it is possible. And I think a lot of the time when you're there, you kind of get in this flow state. Um, imagine that you're playing tennis and you play against someone who's a professional, like Roger Federer or Serena Williams or something. It gets pretty demotivating quickly because you lose every point. Yeah. Play against... If you play against like a, a child who's like four or five years old, well, that gets demoting because you win every point. It's not, not exciting. But if you play against someone who's your equal, you win a few points, they win a few points, you have a chance to win, but only if you really try. That's super motivating because it's kind of like a variable reward. It's kind of like you're on that razor's edge. Um, so it can happen, but that's harder to do. But anyway, immediate progress and variable rewards are really good ways to build habits. It's kind of like why people oftentimes will go through kind of a crisis once they achieve their goal, because what kept them going each day was that variability, mm. you know, I'm like, Oh, like I almost, I don't, I don't, oh. once you're like, cool, I won the, the Stanley cup or the, you know, whatever. I'm like, what? Else? Oh, I based yeah. my whole identity around this. Now I'm on the top of it. I'm like, Oh, emptiness. I call this like the, uh, <laughs> it's like a yo-yo effect, you know, yeah. you like, uh, you, you train for eight months to win the half marathon or to run the half marathon. Then you do it. And then the, the race isn't there anymore to push you along. And so you're like, well, why, you know, why am I still motivated? Why am I working hard? And so then you stop running and then you turn around three months from now. You're like, man, I haven't run in three months. Like I need to get back on track. Nope. So you kind of like yo-yo back and forth between working and not. And that's one reason why I feel like and this is a core philosophy in the book that you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. And part of the, the point of that philosophy is to be more process focused, to have like this kind of long-term goalless mindset of just, you're focusing on endless refinement and continuous improvement and mastering your craft and showing up every day and just like being in it rather than achieving a particular outcome. Like, publishing a book or running a half marathon or whatever. It's not that any of those things are bad. They're just points along the curve. And if you embrace this kind of endless refinement philosophy, this systems oriented approach over a goals oriented approach, then you have a reason to keep moving even after you cross off each goal. Yeah. The other thing I really liked in the book was 
orienting yourself around your identity as opposed to, to the the goal or the objective, mm. which I don't think that's the language you used exactly, but or maybe, maybe it was. But that, Similar, yeah. I, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? So uh, the way that I define this is that we have like outcome-based goals and identity-based uh, habits. Outcome-based habits, identity-based habits. Yeah. So usually when someone goes about the process of trying to change, they think about the outcome they want to achieve. You know, I want to lose 20 pounds or I want to make six figures this year or whatever. And then once they have the outcome, they back into a plan for achieving it. So they're like, all right, well, if I want to earn six figures, I need to make five sales calls a day. Or if I want to, um, you know, if I want to lose 20 pounds, I got to follow this diet and I need to work out five days a week and whatever. And, um, typically it stops there. So they start with the outcome, they come up with a plan and then like whatever beliefs or identity come out of that process is just, they don't really think about it. I think it's better to invert that. Uh, so it's not that any of these levels are unnecessary or even wrong. It's just the direction of change. So the question to ask yourself is, all right, you want to lose 20 pounds. Well, who is the type of person that could lose 20 pounds? Right. Maybe it's the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. Um, and so then you focus on building that identity. Let me be the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. Let me become that person. And then whatever results follow will come naturally. Um, and so ultimately, uh, true change is kind of like identity change. Because once you believe that you are that person, you're not even really pursuing behavior change in any way. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already believe that you are. Mm. You know, like if you, if you believe that you're the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, you don't have to convince yourself to go to the gym. That's just what you do. You know, you're just being you. Um, it's one thing to say, like, I'm the type of person who wants this. Something very different to say, I'm the type of person who is this. Um, in the book, I give the example of uh, smokers. You know, like you have two people who are trying to quit and you offer them both a cigarette. And one person says, oh, no, thanks. I'm trying to quit. And then the second person says, oh, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker. Yeah. Same behavior. They're, they're both turning down the cigarette. But the first person still identifies as a smoker and they're trying to do something that they're not. They're trying to be something that they're not. The second person is like, oh, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker. They, they no longer identify as the type of person who smokes. And it just signals a different level of change. Um, and it's, it becomes much easier to stick to a habit once it feels aligned with your identity. Yeah. It's interesting with like drug addicts. Like I was... Um with some folks just a couple days ago that I had mentioned, they were talking about, um, to you, I mentioned to you at dinner and they were talking about like, you know, once an addict, always an addict, mm. you know, like I'm sober, but I'm an addict. Mm. And it's almost like they're like defensive around that. <laughs> like, listen, right. yeah, yeah. I am an addict. Like they, um, <laughs> maybe not like they want to be it, but like they, they still identify as it, right? They're yeah. like, they, they're not willing to give it up. Yeah. And so um, from their perspective, it's almost like it's helpful for them. That's kind of like the model of, of AA. It's helpful for them to proclaim that and kind of hold on to that and then work from there. And in my mind, I haven't been able to wrap myself around like that being like the wholest, healthiest approach, but I don't understand enough of it to really have yeah, an opinion. I, so I'm not an expert on addiction and it's possible that it's a different beast that it's like a, um, the way that I think about it is you have a, it's like a spectrum for any behavior. So you have an individual behavior. Then if you repeat that a bunch of times, you kind of move down the spectrum. And at some point you cross this threshold where it becomes a habit and you could do it more or less automatically. And then if you move even further along the spectrum, you get to addictions, which are behaviors that you continue to repeat despite negative consequences. You know it doesn't serve you, but you still can't stop. Um, and I think there's something about the brain's circuitry or about the feedback loop uh, of those four stages that I mentioned that's kind of broken there. Like you, 
you see the cue, you still get the craving, you take the response, but you don't have a, re a reward. You actually have like a consequence or a pain, but yet you still can't turn it off. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure how identity plays into that, but I have heard that from multiple addicts that they are sober or clean, but still are an addict. Um, yeah. and so I'm not sure what's going on with, with that process. It's, uh, I mean, it's complicated for sure, but I think that the good news is I think that addiction is a separate category from breaking bad habits. So like if an addict fate feels that way, it doesn't mean you have to feel that way about all your bad habits, mm. um, that those can be, you can still learn and adjust them. What um, do you presently struggle with? Well, I mentioned this to you, uh, at dinner, but one of the ones that's been challenging for me is a power down routine. Um, and getting ready to go to sleep each night. So I kind of have this, uh, you had told me something I, I didn't realize about like your hormones kind of are getting ready for sleep. Yeah, they get spiked up. And then if you're not going to bed right then, if you're not kind of powering down, you just use that additional, um, that shift in biochemistry and put it toward work or put it towards cat something. videos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see them all. So. <laughs> I have this thing though, where like, <laughs> I get a second, uh, I get a second wind around like 10 PM and I kind of do an extra hour or two or maybe even three of work. Yeah. And, um, I don't cheat myself on sleep. So if I go to bed at midnight, I'm not getting up till eight. Or if I go to bed at one, I'm not getting up till nine. Um, and I know that I do good work or I, I'm able to focus well, uh, when I wake up earlier. So I would like to be up at six or seven, but, um, it's not the sleep. That's the problem. It's the power down routine. Mm. What have you found to help or are you flailing on that? Well, so I've started to think through this a little bit, like what could I actually do to improve this? And, um, I think it's instructive and a good example of how to think about improving pretty much any habit. So the first thing that I think uh, you should do, or I should do, um, <laughs> is to check off a variety of these, what I would call one-time actions that can pay off again and again in the future. So, uh, I already gave one example earlier about the outlet timer. Um, so it's a one-time choice. You buy the timer, you set it for 10 PM each night, kills the internet. Um, or kills a television or whatever. Um, another thing that you could do though, there are like a variety of these one-time choices or investments that could make the habit of powering down or the habit of sleep more effective. So split test, different mattresses, figure out the one that leads to the best night's sleep for you Buy that one-time investment helps you out every night. Um, buy blackout curtains so that you can sleep in an entirely dark, uh, environment, um, purchase earmuffs or uh, earplugs or something so that it can be quiet if you live in a noisy city or something like that, or when you're on the road. Um, buy a sleep mask so you can sleep on the airplane uh, or in the hotel room. Um, you could also get some of those, there's like the chili pad and some of those other things that can cool the, the bed so that yeah. the temperature is more ideal. Um, but the point here is that the first step, I think, is to take some of these one-time choices that make all the other, all the future choices easier. And once you've done that, once you've like primed the environment for success, then you can start to worry more about, um, okay, do I need to set an alarm on my phone for 10, 15 every night to remind myself like, Hey, it's time to go to bed in addition to having the outlet timer and stuff like that. Um, some of the choices you've made just in your apartment, like having the salt lamps or the candles rather than using actual lights at night, uh, to kind of help yourself power down. And I keep self care stuff all over the place. So that's another really powerful way to, to power down mm. is, um, as you do like, you know, foam rolling your hips or I'll put like a kettlebell around my guts or you put a band around, like floss out my, my, my viscera, my guts. Mm. Um, that's directly connected to actually starting to downregulate your nervous system. Hmm. You know, so when you get that slow, deep pressure from a massage, 
most people will start to kind of like, like conk out as opposed to like a stimulating, vibrating kind of mm. session that yeah. will wake you back up. That's like pregame. Hmm. You know, so just that's another little thing people are going to have. So I think the, and this is part of my philosophy for habits in general. Um, the, the reason I chose the phrase atomic habits for the book, there were like three reasons. The first is uh, the word atomic can mean tiny or small, like an atom. Um, the second is that the word atomic can also mean the fundamental unit in a larger system. So like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. Uh, and then the third and final meaning is that atomic can mean the source of immense energy or power. And I think that if you combine all three, you kind of get the narrative arc of the book, which is if you make these tiny, small changes and you layer them on top of each other, like fundamental units in a larger system, yeah. then you can end up with a powerful result. And I think that that's kind of what we're talking about here with the sleep habit is this idea that the holy grail of habit change is not a single 1% improvement. It's like a thousand of them. And mm -hmm. you just take all these little choices. You got the salt lamps and the candles. You've got the uh, deep tissue massage or the, the deeper massage for your viscera. You've got a mattress that works really well for you. You have blackout curtains. You've got earplugs or a quiet environment. And once you start to stack all that stuff together, you add in the outlet timer and maybe an alarm or a reminder to go to bed. Now, all of a sudden, you've got like 17 reasons that are all moving you toward the right or desired thing. And I think that um, if you look at people who stick to good habits for the long run, it's often because they're in an environment that makes those choices easier. And so you can, rather than being like the victim of your environment, you can be the architect of it. Yeah. You can like design a space for yourself that feels vital and um, and encouraging rather than something that hinders you. Yeah, it seems like if you can maintain joy in your daily existence, that's like really powerful wind in your sails. Mm. You know, if you're doing everything, you're like, okay, I'm forcing myself into creating this habit because I think I'm told it's the better thing to do. Like if you're in that, like it's probably really hard to change your habits. The metaphor I use is like a garden hose. Like imagine you have a garden hose that's bent in the middle mm -hmm. and you got a little bit of water trickling out. And if you want to get more water to exit the hose, you have two options. First option is just crank up the valve, force more water through. Um, but that increases tension in your life, increases friction. Right. The second option is just remove the bend and let the water flow through naturally. And that reduces tension, reduces friction in your life. And a lot of the time, the conversation about how to achieve your goals or how to change your habits is a, the equivalent of crank up the valve. You need more persistence, you need yeah. more grit, you gotta work harder, you need to grind, you need to hustle. Um, and there's a place for that stuff, but it's not the long-term path. And it increases tension and friction. So the, the long-term path is, yeah, you want to be a type of person who works hard. You want to be a type of person who can persevere and who has grit, but you want to be doing it in an environment that is aligned with your goals, that is uh, set up and designed to make that stuff easy. Um, the way that I phrase in the book is you want to make it easy to do things that pay off in the long run. It's yeah. not that you never want to do hard things. What you want to do is make it as easy as possible to do the thing that, that delivers the greatest payoff. It's not easy to step in a freezer or do the sauna, right? <laughs> but it's only hard for the first three minutes. And if you can make it minutes. as easy as possible to do that thing that gets you a payoff, then you're starting to live in an environment where peak performance is more possible. At what point do you get tired of talking about habits? Like what's next on the docket for you? Well, okay, so that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I haven't I haven't gotten tired talking about them oh, yet. Good. But <laughs> thanks for us. Um, I uh, I do think that there are other things that are also important parts of the equation. Yeah. So 
Um, I've got a variety of other interests like about incentives and consciousness. And um, I really like financial independence and early retirement and kind of all the stuff that's going on in the fire movement. So there's like a bunch of things that are like outside of that space that I'm interested in. Um, but the uh, related to habits, I think decision-making is another thing that's crucial. So yeah. habits and decision-making, I would consider like the two pillars of living a successful life. And the way that I think about it is that decision-making your choices set the trajectory that's available to you or the potential that's available. So as an example, um, let's say you're an entrepreneur and you can make an initial decision to either start a local pizza parlor or you could start um, like a technology company, a software company or an email marketing service or something. So if you kind of map out this dotted line of like what the scale is or what the potential is of those two decisions, you might see that the software company has like a much steeper curve or much more hockey stick curve. So it's got greater potential or greater leverage, but your habits determine how far you walk along that curve. So it's possible that you could start the local pizza parlor and end up as a much more successful entrepreneur if you had really killer habits because you're capturing more of that potential. And of course, what we ultimately want is to both make great decisions and have great habits. And so I think that there's an opportunity to talk about that, about the importance of initial decisions and of decision-making and choices and how to pair that nicely with great habits so that you can both create greater leverage and potential for yourself and capture that by executing and showing up each day. Yeah. You've read the dip, I'm sure. Yeah. Seth Godin. Yeah. 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 That's an interesting thing is to know whether you should stick it out when you're in that dip experience, <laughs> you know, or like, is this some bullshit that I should, I should drop this. And you know, I think there's so many, so many times where it's just like, that's, I mean, that's like the relevant conversation. Like once you get on the other side of the dip mm. and things are going your way, it's like, of course it all makes sense. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Everything's like easy and logical in hindsight. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, I mean, I think this is one of the things that makes entrepreneurship so challenging is that you have to, nobody knows for sure when you need to stick with something and uh, keep grinding or when you should give up and move to a different area. Mm. Um, there's a later in the book, I talk about this thing called the explore exploit trade-off and it kind of helps deal with a Explorer, situation. What? Explore versus exploit, the exploit. explore exploit trade-off. Huh. So the, the idea is in the beginning of uh, any endeavor, beginning of your career, beginning of a project that you're working on for the next three months, um, there should be a period of broad exploration where you're kind of looking, you know, maybe you try like five different jobs near the beginning of your career and you do each one for two years or something. And that's like the first decade, or maybe you, um, try a, research a variety of different methods for attacking this particular project. And you do that for the first like two weeks. Um, and that period of broad exploration is important because it exposes you to a variety of options. Yeah. But then once you get a little further along and time starts to compress a little bit, you get close to the deadline or you're maybe further along in your career, you should start to exploit rather than explore, exploit the best option that you've found so far. Hmm. Um, there are a lot of people who have applied the same methodology. I think there's someone who even calculated the math of it uh, for dating um, to see like how many, how many people should you date broadly in the beginning to kind of learn what's important to you and learn what type of personality you resonate with and learn the person that, uh, that matches up well with you. And then at some point, uh, once you come across somebody that seems to be a good fit again, well, then you should start to commit to that person rather than continuing to explore endlessly. Um, and, uh, 
Anyway, the point here is that it provides one method for dealing with this inherent trade-off that you're talking about, which is how do you know when you're in the dip? How do you know when you're supposed to keep working on something versus give up and move on to something else? And so one answer is early on, really broad funnel, and then later tight filter. Yeah. Um, and another answer or way to look at that uh, with the explore exploit thing is the more that you're winning, the more you should exploit the option that you have. The more that you're losing or don't feel like you're getting those results that you're looking for, you, the more you should explore. Um, and uh, so the way that that was phrased to me early in my entrepreneurial career, which helped me a lot for the first two years was try things until something comes easily, you know, so like keep exploring. And then once you start to get something with, you know, I tried probably four or five different websites before uh, I launched jamesclear.com. And as soon as I launched that and started writing about habits and I was doing like two articles a week, the growth rate on that site was way higher than anything else I had tried. I don't know why it was just a different topic for, for whatever reason, maybe my skills were a little better than maybe it's just the right time to write about it. But, um, it took off much faster than everything else. And so I was like, oh, okay, I've explored broadly now. Like this is the thing that I should double down on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one way of dealing with that. It's kind of like specializing athletes from children. You end mm. up really like paralyzing them in a way, mm. you know, you don't allow that, that matrix to, to really, become interconnected because all they did was that one stroke with the tennis racket, you know, 10,000 times, you know, but allowing yourself, it's actually like a real, I think a lot of times people will be, you know, early twenties or early thirties or whatever, early something and feel this innate obligation to have the thing. And it's actually kind of like almost like a load off in some ways to not have the thing. If you can look at it from the perspective, like, oh, this is dope. I get to explore. Mm. I don't have to fucking coop myself up in the in a ho apartment and write a book. Yeah, it takes the <laughs> pressure off you. I don't need to be making $100,000 by 30. You know, yeah. like I'm just allowed to explore things. Yeah, I'm and, going to and Belgium to and drinking got, beer. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that that period of exploration is crucial. And ultimately, the weird thing about it is that it ends up being a good method for getting better results in the long run. I wrote this article about first principles thinking, and it's just this idea that, you know, distill things down to their fundamental pieces uh, for what you know is true about a particular problem or area, and then build back up from there. It's like you break down the, the castle into all the little Lego blocks, and you see what the blocks are, and they're like, oh, yeah, we could take this and build it back up and make a car out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and... One way to, to think about that, or one example that I really like is uh, Gutenberg and the printing press. So there had been printing presses before his. There had been like, you know, little um, uh, metal letters and things like that that you could actually like print something. But what he did was he brought in this special device. I think it was like this corkscrew kind of press from winemakers, totally different industry. Hmm. And that was what allowed him to like press uh rapidly it was a, that was what changed the whole game what changed the speed of it and then you know of course ended up being one of the most world-changing inventions because of the dissemination of information and things like that but uh the point is he didn't get it from his one area if all you're doing is that one tennis swing if all you if the only place you're looking for advantages is your one domain you end up hamstringing yourself it's yeah. often the most innovative and important ideas are the ones that happen at like the intersection of of industries and so if you're willing to explore broadly, um, you can often end up getting better ideas in the long run. And that's one reason why companies like Google, they, they kind of employ this explore exploit thing with their 20% time, you know, where 80% of your time is supposed to be exploiting your current job. You're working on your position, on your role, on your responsibilities. 20% of your time each week, you're allowed to explore. 
and see what, you know, you can work on whatever project is interesting to you. Mm. And uh, that's how Gmail came. That's how AdWords came about. I mean, some of the most successful Google products are a result of this ex exploration and some of their most failed products, uh, Google Wave and Google Buzz and some of the other stuff that, like nobody ever uses anymore. Um, that came out at 20% time as well. But um, the point is you need that exploration to come across some of these like real gems. I think it was, areas. it might've been Google. It was one of those, those progressive companies like that, that they were actually rewarding people for failing. So they mm. kind of like flipped it up. So it's like whoever failed like the hardest because they, they stretched the boundaries. They went outside of the norm the most. Yeah. You get a raise. <laughs> so it totally that took sounds that like a very dangerous up. game to play. But I like the. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, I think the, the Wright brothers, they were like bike mechanics or yeah. something like that. There's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of different. Uh, there's like writing press, uh, printing press examples where what gave the people the capacity to innovate and 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 you know evolve was the fact that they don't see it from the tunnel of of the mm. the, the ordinary mm -hmm. we were talking about that last night with like if you're not a heretic or you're not ruffling people's feathers or there's not at least some degree of you know, percentage of people that think that you're a crazy person mm. you're probably not That's really some level really of contrarianism thinking. yeah um, yeah the guy who uh, who invented the rolling suitcase uh, first luggage with like the, the wheels on it. He was just a dude schlepping his luggage through the airport in the seventies. And he saw this construction worker pushing a dolly and he was like, this is stupid. Why does my bag not have wheels on it? Uh. And so it wasn't someone who worked at a luggage company. It wasn't someone who, you know, like had been uh, designing backpacks for a decade. Uh. It's just some guy who saw it differently, who was outside of that tunnel vision. Yeah, man, you got to run. You got you got other other uh, <laughs> obligations here. What's your trip like in L.A.? How long are you in town? Yeah, so in town for three or four days, uh, doing a variety of interviews about the book and um, jumping in a sauna every jumping now and then. Jumping in the saunas. Yeah, good. Thanks for uh, the experience. Of that course. Cool. Yeah, yeah, anytime, really man. Um, how do people learn more? How do people get books? How do people do all this stuff? Yeah. Okay. So, book is called Atomic Habits: An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones, and um, you can find it at atomichabits.com. The book is there, but there's also some bonus guides. Like there's a guide on how to apply the ideas to parenting. There's a guide on how to apply the ideas to business, um, templates and worksheets for tracking your habits and other stuff. But anyway, all that stuff's at atomichabits.com. Cool. So what about social media? Yeah. So if you want to see <laughs> more to, of my work crack writing, out on social media, uh, <laughs> you can just check jamesclear.com. Yeah. Uh, and I've got articles organized by category. Uh, so you can poke around and see what's interesting to you. And then uh, there are links to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. As and well. you're an excellent photographer. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. I, uh, I just do that for fun. Um, I don't know. I, at some point I may add it into the business model more. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I've done travel photography work in 30 countries now. Damn. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah. My Instagram's just a bunch of ab shots and selfies. <laughs> Oh really though, God, that's a narcissistic asshole. Like <laughs> <laughs> James is putting art up here. Hey man, if you got it, flaunt it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, you bet, dude. Over now. Thanks. All right. Appreciate it. Recording over. A line pop.
podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning into that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Some ways that you can support this podcast, one of which you can pick up an aligned band, which is a heavy duty resistance band, comes along with a door anchor and a carrying case and a video guide on how to mobilize those joints and integrate that body of yours. Really great stuff. You can be found at aligntherapy.com and also on amazon.com. Um, thank you also so much for utilizing the Amazon affiliate link on the right-hand sidebar of the podcast page. Bookmark that thing. Anytime you purchase some crap on Amazon, purchase that crap through that link. We get a percentage of it. Costs you nothing. And I think that's enough. Thank you guys so much for reviews on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Have a beautiful rest of your day. Pow.